when I got into VC the first time, um, I was really, really surprised because you would expect that those people who back the most disruptive companies and the most visionary founders, they themselves would operate in a different way. But you're completely right. I think the only innovation that ever happened was essentially pen and paper to we now used uh, Excel, PowerPoint and Word. This episode is brought to you by WHU, the Otto Beisheim School of Management. WHU is reshaping the way students learn about business, management, finance and entrepreneurship through its innovative programs and partnerships in Germany and across the globe. To learn more about this globally ranked university, visit whu.edu today. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Most Awesome Founder podcast where we delve into the minds of visionary entrepreneurs, investors, and industry experts. Today, we have a truly remarkable guest with us. Joining us is André Retteraat, a partner at Early Bird Venture Capital, and the brilliant mind behind the influential data-driven VC newsletter. On today's episode, we have the incredible opportunity to dive into the world of data-driven venture capital with André himself. We'll explore the vast opportunities and challenges that arise when using data to inform investment strategies. Join us as we uncover the secrets behind successful data-driven investing and understand how it's reshaping the future of startups and entrepreneurship. Coming to you from WHU on the banks of the Rhine River in beautiful Fallendar, Germany. This is the best and most awesome founder podcast. A show about entrepreneurs, innovators, advisors, and educators, and the stories that make them who they are today. Andre, welcome to the most found, uh, most awesome founder podcast. Great that you could make it here. Um, as we always do in this podcast, we start with some storytelling. Um, so can I maybe give you the floor uh, before Garrett and I jump in to tell something about your background? Uh, where are you coming from? Uh, why are we talking with you today? Yeah, thanks both for having me. Um, so I'm Andre, I'm a partner with Early Bird, as you already said. I actually uh, grew up uh, very close to WHU, uh, close to Koblenz and the wonderful okay. Eiffel close to Nürburgring, um, then uh, studied mechatronics engineering with a computer science focus. Before I then um, started in industry, so I worked a bit more than five years in total with uh, corporate in the steel sector, where I was really on the shop floor in the steel plant doing initially process automation, so coding and C, C++, then got into predictive maintenance and eventually ended up in data science. So doing mostly oscillation measurement, um, anomaly detection kind of stuff. Then decided to uh, continue in a graduate degree to the master's in management um, at TU Munich. It was also when I moved to Munich and uh, as part of that was also in the US and by accident heard about VC. So I decided to come back to Germany, did an internship in VC and then was actually surprised twofold in a positive way because of the high talent density, uh, both within the VC team, but then also the entrepreneurs uh, and the LPs we've been working with. But then I was also negatively surprised how manual, inefficient and biased all of the processes were. And I was really incredibly surprised how the best and highly talented people actually do lots of monkey work to collect data, mm -hmm. to structure the data and actually make it actionable. So this is when I then decided to do, like in Germany, as part of a two year master's degree, we typically need to do a final thesis. So I went to the UK did my final thesis in the UK, um, which was the inception of my data-driven VC studies, uh, essentially. And then um, continued with the PhD on this topic, uh, really around machine learning and venture capital. And then um, started with Early Bird a bit more than five years ago, both on the investment side as a partner, but also started to productize uh, what I did in my PhD. Yeah, and actually, I, I'm really interested in that because it's quite rare to see that people are able to leverage their PhD for something concrete. <laughs> and we have Garrett here today with us. <laughs> I think Garrett can also uh, appreciate the fact that it's sometimes quite challenging to kind of leverage a PhD for, for 
practical applications, but but you apparently seem to be able to do that. So oh, yeah, you have done your PhD at the Technical University in Munich on, on this topic of data-driven VC, and that's now where you have become kind of an expert in Germany. Can you maybe tell a bit more about how you have managed to do that? So was it immediately from the start when you did your PhD immediately like, I want to do this PhD and I want to make sure that it will be relevant for my future career? Or was it more kind of in a co coincidental way that this happened? It's a great question, actually. So I guess the first time I ever considered doing a PhD was uh, during my studies in the US. So I actually had uh, some professors asking me about my plans and if I would actually consider a PhD. Um, and uh, I continued this thought uh, while at the same time doing this internship. So I saw both worlds in parallel. And then when I was in the US, it actually became quite clear to me that uh, the academic world just works differently than uh, most of the uh, practical practitioner world. And for me, it just became very clear that academia, at least long term for me back then, was really not uh, the way to go uh, for multiple reasons. And for me, it was just very clear that uh, at least midterm, I want to get back into VC because I really enjoyed what I did in the internship and really uh, wanted to learn the craft from experienced investors and become a great investor myself. So for me, the path was already clear. Yet I noticed that uh, when trying to also change how VC funds work, I needed to go very deep into this topic. And uh, for me, it was also clear that this is both research related, but also lots of software development, data science, so quite some hands-on coding. And for me, I just found the right setup uh, with a great professor at TU Munich uh, who was open to actually take me as a PhD student. So I've been in touch with many different professors. And uh, unfortunately, most of them said, look, uh, this setup, your topic, it's just uh, like mixing different kind of disciplines. So it does not uh, go deep enough for like uh, pure computer science. It doesn't it does not go deep enough for pure finance and so on. So I think it was quite new mixing different disciplines. And thankfully, I found a professor who was open to it. So long, long, long answers to a short question. But I think I was quite intentional about the topic from the very beginning. And I knew that I want to become a VC myself thereafter. So for me, it was less uh, of a coincidence and more of an intentional plan. Andre, I'd like to ask you about the transition because I think you're doing something that is, you know, many people would say is disruptive and, and that's wonderful. But I, I think a lot of people would also say you're disrupting one of the least disruptable industries on the planet. Um, I think VC in general has looked largely the same for about 50 years. Right. Like it's it is a pretty traditional business model since the first ones were arising in Silicon Valley. And now you're kind of coming in saying, hey, we're going to do things. I have ideas of doing things a little bit different, integrating, uh, being more technology, being more data focused. Was it hard to find people actually in the practitioner world that were ready to look at new ways of doing things? Did you, do you still and do you even still run into a lot of entrenched kind of values in how the the industry is run it's such a great question and i think it's it's really on spot on the biggest problem so on, when i got into vc the first time um, i was really really surprised because you would expect that those people who back the most disruptive companies and the most visionary founders they themselves would operate in a different way but you're completely right i think the only innovation that ever happened was essentially pen and paper to we now use uh, Excel, PowerPoint and Word. So this was the only digitization step that the industry has ever seen, which like I just cannot believe why this should be the case. And I think we see as a sub-industry of private equity and then private equity as a sub-industry of the financial industry more generally, it's just a rare and very unique breed within this whole industry. Because if we look at other subsectors of the financial industry, so for example, the hedge fund industry, we've seen that they got massively disrupted in the 1980s and 1990s through the use of algorithms and data-driven approaches. So there is no logical reason why it should not happen to private equity and VC specifically. And with this intention, I started some conversations like six, seven years back. And I was actually surprised that 
the key answer that most people gave me was actually, oh, no, no, we're doing early stage investing. Early stage investing is a lot about experience, a lot about gut feeling. That was the answer number one. And answer number two was mostly it's qualitative data. So, yes, it does work in public markets where you have uh, like a, a fraction of a second uh, live data, essentially. So almost real time data, which is available on all companies. But it does not work in private equity because, as the name private equity already says, it's private data as well. So most of this data is A, not available and B, it's very qualitative. So how could you make sense of qualitative data? And I think with these in my perspective, three false assumptions in mind, I started all of this research saying, look, I think number one, uh, yes, private data is out there, but even though the companies are private, there's lots of public data in the web, like, I don't know, website traffic, like uh, registrations of uh, new companies, new funding rounds in public registers. There is LinkedIn. There are people behind the companies. You can find lots of data about the people in these companies and so on. And I think the second part, yes, it's qualitative, but you can also semi-quantify qualitative data. So, for example, I can look at the university background or previous work experience of someone and then just cluster this and then essentially say, okay, now I build a dictionary. This is a tier one university. This is a tier two university. This is a tier three university. And I can even take the next level and saying, okay, if you study degree number A at uh, university number X, then the combination of this tuple is actually a tier one. So you get a specific grade. And with these kinds of quantification systems, you can suddenly make use of qualitative data. So I think there are solutions to it, but the problem in my perspective is really the mindset and the culture within the VC, because it's not that it was not possible in the past. It was more that people didn't want it to happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I know Dries wants to jump in into the, no, the, no, nerdy, go ahead, go ahead. the, the nerdy data stuff, but I want to ask <laughs> one more higher level question first that might kind of frame it. I'm always interested in understanding the why right and understanding the the purpose behind things and i think kind of taking this approach has some uh interesting impacts right i mean on one hand you can make decision making better within a firm on another hand you know one could argue that taking a data driven approach can actually even the playing field a little bit and i think when you look at the vc landscape especially when it's a seller's market you know, you kind of have haves and have nots where, you know, there are many firms and funds that, you know, remain successful because of the gravitas of their brand and the credibility that they have and the reputation that they have. Obviously, data can influence different aspects of the value chain. But when you think of the deal flow side of things, the top of top of funnel, do, I kind of hypothesize that this could essentially, you know, you're accessing a lot of different data out there. If more firms have these tools, they may have a broader reach and, you know, access to greater deal flow. On the other side, of course, good data can help an individual firm make better decisions. Can you share a little bit of like, what's your motivation? What's the drive? Like what, what was the problem that you're solving for uh, that gets you up each day working on this? I think if you if you really zoom out and compare the performance of the VC industry on average, it's actually not that good compared to other asset classes. And I think it's 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 really an outlier business. If you look at the VC industry per se, you see that the top quartile or the top decile are incredibly well performing. But then if you uh, look at the portfolios, so one level deeper, if you now look at the individual VC and look at their portfolio, it's again a similar distribution. So we have both a power law distribution, like similar to Pareto 80-20, but with a higher alpha coefficient. So it's probably like 5% of the portfolio make up 90, 95% of the returns. We see this power law distribution both on the portfolio level, but on also if we lift it up one level, we see it across the whole industry. And I think from this quantitative angle, it just becomes very clear that we see was quite ineffective but then looking at how the job was done, also very inefficient. And now, if we take these two components, seeing that there is, there is a gap, there is something not going as well as it should go, and we look also at some other components, which are a bit more qualitative, 
we can also see that it's quite biased actually so it's more looking at the root causes of it and there are multiple biases like i don't know similarity bias recency bias all of that some are good some are not so good um, and i think the second component of that is that venture capital as an industry was very exclusive so it was mostly done through warm introductions or close tight-knit networks so you knew someone who knew someone that's the most that happened in the past and for people who didn't have the proper network, even though they might be highly talented, they might have the biggest vision, they might have the best team around themselves, if they didn't have the network in the past, it was just very difficult for them to actually raise venture capital money. And with all of this, both from the quantitative, the performance level, seeing the inefficiencies, the ineffectiveness, but then also the exclusivity, that it's just very difficult for the most talented entrepreneurs out there to actually access money. I just thought, what can be a solution to that? And that coupled with my background, being very data-driven by nature, having this education, having this previous experience, just led me to actually start experimenting. And um, as you said, the value chain is quite broad. So if I think about the like investment value chain, I always think about it's the sourcing, it's the screening, it's the due diligence, then you have the closing, and then you have like the post-investment portfolio value creation. You have multiple follow-on rounds, and then at some point, hopefully, you also have an exit. And if you look at this value chain, you see that two-thirds of the value, there are multiple studies, uh, probably both of you have, have read, that show that two-thirds of the value creation is actually in the first two parts, which is the sourcing and screening. So this mm -hmm. is where I also started to experiment. And the clear answer to your question is really that my hypothesis is that talent is distribu distributed equally globally, but capital is not. And with this yeah. approach, I think we can get closer to allocating capital more effectively, more efficiently, and more inclusive to the right entrepreneurs out there and eventually achieve better returns across the industry, but then hopefully also for our team, for our fund. Yeah, so as I understand it, you're saying with this data-driven approach, we should be able to better spot talent that has the potential to become these successful outliers for which we are all looking, not? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Because at the same time, and, and I'm struggling with that myself, because we also at WAU, we try to map our ecosystem and analyze it. And in the end, like you said before, uh, VC and, and this kind of successful entrepreneurship is an outlier game. Whereas data analytics typically is about identifying generalizable patterns, finding kind of the average observation in your sample. So it seems that the VC game, which is kind of finding the, the needle in the haystack versus data analytics, which is more finding generalizable patterns are two different games. But in one way or another, you try to combine these two games. Can you explain a bit more how you're trying to do that? It's, it's, it's funny you say that, actually, because uh, I, I said in the introduction that uh, back then during my time in the corporate, I did uh, anomaly detection and oscillation measurement. Okay. So in the steel mean, okay. in the mill, we actually tried to find anomalies that predict machine failure. So yeah. with this, with this uh, clear focus on anomaly detection, I think it's actually not too different in the VC world because we are not interested, exactly like you said, in the averages because VCs only work with the power law, specifically early stage VCs. I'm not talking about more growth stage, which approach more of normal distribution, but speaking about early stage venture, it's really about these outliers. And I think uh, spotting outliers are really the anomalies in the market. And there are different techniques and approaches of spotting these anomalies, but we are not interested in the average of the market. We are really interested in these outliers. And I think uh, in the past 10 years specifically, we've seen the field of machine learning and data science evolve that with several techniques, we can finally spot these outliers, assuming we have significant sample sizes to train our models, assuming we have uh, relevant features that we can use and combine to really make sense of the data. And, and can you maybe give one, one example of, of, of a kind of approach to identify this kind of what we now call anomalies, but it's actually the most successful outliers. C can you give an example of, of how that, that's done? 
I, sure. Um, I mean, there are, there are different uh, models out there, but uh, it depends on the outcome that you want to predict. But if we go as simple as a binary outcome saying success mm -hmm. or failure, we can define success and now it becomes very complex. Uh, success from stakeholder perspective, shareholder perspective, but we as a VC investor, we are shareholder value perspective. So we look at the financial outcomes. So essentially, what is the entry point? What is the valuation at the entry point? And what is the exit? What's the dilution between entry and exit? And how much can we multiply our money? So from this perspective, we can define positive outcomes. So like the ones in our binary um, uh, setting. We can define them as an IPO, for example. We can define them as trade sales beyond a specific size. So these trade sales, we can, uh, or the size of the trade sales depends a lot on our fund size, on our diversification mm -hmm. strategy and so on. But let's, let's take a very simple example. We take all of the IPOs, all of the trade sales beyond whatever, 500 million, and classify these exits as a one being a positive yeah. outcome for us. And we take everything else. So trade sales below 500 million, companies that got liquidated, uh, companies that are working deaths and just continue uh, forever. So all of these and just classify them as a zero. Then we have, we look at historic data. So we need to take input data from T1, let's assume whatever, 2015. How did these companies look at 2015? And we just take the outcome as I just described as of whatever, 2022. And then we um, essentially label all of these companies with ones and zeros based on the outcome to this point. And then we take this data set to essentially train and with these machine learning uh, models, or it's, this is uh, to this point, it's mostly still data science. It's not machine learning because we don't have a closed loop no. yet. Um, so it's different kind of data science approaches uh, that help us to essentially like simply set spot patterns in the input data from 2015 that could have predicted a positive outcome as of 2023. And one model for that that, that worked quite well is an XGBoost classifier model, for example, and there are multiple other models that, uh, depending on the feature engineering, um, work better or worse. So this is a simple approach on how we can actually predict a positive outcome with data as of T1 at the point of an outcome as of T2. Because I think also related to that, I think a very important mantra in general is shitty data in, shitty data out. And I think that has been a big challenge for a very long time in this industry. As you mentioned before, we are looking here at private companies. It's quite difficult to get information. And of course, if you start doing fancy data analytics on shitty data, you will have fancy analytics, but they will have shitty outcomes. So based on your experience, and if, if people want to start doing data-driven VC themselves, even as an angel investor, what are the kind of essential data that you need to collect to avoid that you are only training shitty data? Yeah, I think th 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 there, are, there are multiple avenues to take. Um, it depends firstly a lot on your resources. So if you have significant management fee and you can afford to build up an engineering team of whatever, 5, 10, 15 people, it's a different mm. path than if you're a solo GP or an angel investor. But uh, what I would say is if I look at the universe of data out there, we can do primary data collection, meaning we can build web scrapers ourselves. We can uh, buy API access to specific sources and really do the data collection all ourselves. There are also secondary providers. Um, I call them commercial database providers. Um, some names you might have heard of, uh, Crunchbase, DRoom, Pitchbook, CV Insights, and so on. Um, they essentially set one abstraction layer on top of the primary data. They have both very scalable web crawlers, but also partially depending on their model, manual teams to collect and or verify the data. So we have this primary approach and a secondary approach. Obviously the secondary approach is overall easier to maintain and also a bit more price efficient than yeah. if you do the primary collection. However, with the primary data collection, you're also more flexible in terms of how you collect the data, which data you collect and so on. But what we've seen, and I, I actually published a paper back then um, on the uh, benchmarking of the commercial database providers, uh, it's by now a bit outdated, but direction is still, uh, still true. 
what I would do is I would start with uh, one or two of these commercial database providers, essentially do some entity matching. So essentially create a single source of truth to not have duplicates above, across uh, the two or potentially three databases, merge them together, and then get a full data dump to actually do some training and data spotting. So that's the first step okay. that I would take. Then the se second step depends a lot on your investment focus. And investment focus, uh, I always think about three dimensions. One is what is your geography focus? Two, what is your stage-wise focus? And three, what is your domain focus? So that can be industry or technology focus. And with these three patterns, uh, these three dimensions, you can actually then define uh, the most relevant data sources for you. So, for example, if you're an early stage investor and you want to spot stealth mode companies, then LinkedIn can be super helpful because if someone mm -hmm. puts, I don't know, starting something new into their description or started working at stealth company, um, that's that's a good indication uh, for you to reach out and, and just uh, build a relationship and check out if it's a fit. However, if you're more, let's say, Series A, Series B uh, investor, I would look for more quantitative data. So I'd be potentially more interested in website data, in uh, whatever payment data, and so on. So this this is this dimension. And then the third one, if you're, let's say, specifically interested in um, developer tools, then you would uh, need to collect GitHub data to look at mm -hmm. what is the number of stars, what's the gradient over time, what's the conversion between stars to forks to issues, what's the engagement, and so on. So it is, it is very difficult to say, um, and it depends a lot on your investment focus. But this is how I would think in two stages. First, secondary data and primary data. And then speaking about primary data, it depends a lot on your investment focus. But then the biggest challenge only starts. So I think the data collection is all doable. But then mm -hmm. the, biggest, uh, the biggest pain point actually starts, which is the entity matching, because you need to uh, remove all duplicates first within a data source. So let's assume you, I don't know, um, scrape a public register and then you have multiple entries for a company because they started a company then they raised multiple funding rounds and then you have multiple entries for the same company so you actually need to figure out okay this is the same company and we need to merge it all together so that eventually you have one role for this company with all of the information included so this is within a source but then you also need to do that across sources so let's assume you have, uh, I don't know, spotted the founder on LinkedIn who said starting something new. So you spot the founder with the name, but there is no company name. Then suddenly this founder starts uh, and registers this company in a public register. The founder might not have uh, her full name on LinkedIn, but it's now often like the official name with second name and so on uh, in the public register. So it might be different. And then suddenly uh, she launches uh, something on Product Hunt, which is uh, more like uh, anonymized whatever account. Mm. And what we need to do is to merge all three accounts together without knowing um, without knowing one key identifier. So that's more of a data science challenge that the more sources you try to include, the more complex it becomes. Mm. Andre, I wanted to ask you about, you know, I, I had a, I had a question that was about when data-driven approaches meet intuitive approaches and where the clashes are. And, you know, I had a different example, but then you brought up one that I thought was really interesting, which was the idea of the investment focus of the firm or the thesis of the fund itself. And, you know, I know a lot of VCs and I see a lot of them that are, you know, they're kind of chasing moving targets and they're chasing the, the shiny thing. They're Web3 and now they're, you know, AI and they're going to bounce to the next thing. And at least from the people that I know, very rarely is that uh, a data-driven approach. It tends to often be an intuitive decision from the, the GPs. Like, is there a, does the data also inform the strategy of the fund at that macro level? Or is there a potential, like, do you see patterns maybe unfolding in the market that aren't aligned with the investment focus of the fund? Yeah, no, I think it's, it, this, this is a great question. And uh, if we look at the VC industry more generally, we see it's maturing. So I think uh, it is true that even if you just look whatever 10 years or potentially just five years back, 
that it was done very intuitively, number one, but also the industry was comparably immature, meaning that uh, there was no specialization about investment focus. So today a partner did a fintech deal, tomorrow it was a quick commerce deal, and then the next day it is a deep tech company. This is not true anymore today. So we've seen first in the US, now also in Europe for the past couple of years, that we have a specialization within VCs and that investors also in the early stage become more thesis driven. So they try to think more long term. That's number one. So yes, VCs need to adapt to the climate, so to the market out there, but then also to specific trends. And if there is a trend, you cannot just uh, ignore the trend. You need to build a thesis about this trend, um, which we've seen, and I think you nicely uh, framed uh, shifting from Web2 to AI. It's funny, but that's also the job of, of a VC. If they didn't have an AI practice in the past, then it's peak time to actually figure out what to do. So thankfully, with an early bird, we have we had a, an AI practice for a very long time already, and we've done investment before suddenly the market exploded. But there are many funds who did not. So it's also important to shift focus and adapt to it. Now to your second question, does it inform also the fund strategy? Yes, it does. So I have I have a clear thesis that. If you cannot measure something, you cannot improve it. So what we've done is essentially looking uh, at our value chain, starting with the sourcing, the screening, and so on, and then cluster it into different cutoff points. Now, if we look into the sourcing, what do we want to achieve? We want to achieve comprehensive coverage. So we want to see every opportunity at the right point in time. So that's a summary there. Then the second point is once we have identified all opportunities, it's just like too much noise. So you said initially finding needle in the haystack. Yes, this is true. So we need to do some proper screening. So how can we narrow down like million plus opportunities down to a number that is manageable by all humans in the investment team? So that's the second part, the screening. Now, the third part is let's assume we have identified the most promising opportunities. We still need to convince the founders that they actually should work with us, not what the, with the other investors. So the third component is really the access component. And what we've done is essentially measuring all these uh, three uh, different stages. So for the first one is what we call hit rates or the inverse miss rates. So we build up uh, big dictionaries of uh, VCs that we uh, consider competitive. So it's hundreds. So in, in, in simple terms, it means if a deal is announced and investor X has invested, would we like to have looked at it or not? So with that in mind, we put down all of the VCs doing that bottom up in the different geographies. We are active across Europe. Then we aggregated this list. We then have like one, uh, one uh, macro list and we track all of the deals that they do, not only the announced one, but also across the public register. So we track all of these deals and then we map against that which um, deals we saw. So saw meaning we added them to our internal CRM system. And with that, we can calculate what is the miss rate or hit rate. And it helps us to adjust to understand, okay, in which parts or which geographies do we need to improve on the sourcing? So it clearly informs our strategy because it also tells us, okay, we need to have more foot on the ground in whatever, in, in, in London, in Paris, in Spain, wherever. So we would need to hire more people and it actually informs also our hiring decision. Like our whole team on the sourcing part is really steered with these metrics. And the same then, uh, and without going into, into more detail here, is true for the screening and then also the access. So on the access part, if, if we have seen a deal and we have qualified it and we decided to do it, what is the win rate actually? So how many deals do we lose? And we can also track that. It also depends a lot on the industry. So some industries are more competitive than other industries and so on. But we measure every single component of the, of the process to actually understand where we need to improve and where we have the biggest level to then also build products with our engineering team for the investment team to improve these metrics. Gotcha. Cool. Cool. Maybe related to that, because I think one of the, the criticisms that I think are there about this kind of data-driven approaches is in the end, you, you build decisions based on data from the past. But of course, especially in like a VC setting, you can question the predictive power of the data in the past for predicting the future. 
Um, is that something that you guys take into account one way or another? Because you could say, for instance, maybe the past 10 years, and I, I assume that most of the data that you have been collecting are about the past 10 years, maybe the past 10 years were really kind of an exceptional period in time with zero interest rates, where uh, every founder with a decent idea could get money, and even the strangest cowboys who had a Web3 idea could get money. And today we have entered a very different macroeconomic environment where the data of three, four years ago might actually no longer be informative. How do you try to deal with that kind of issues that maybe sometimes data from the past are no longer relevant to predict the future today? First off, I, I, I fully agree with that. Um, I, I noticed this problem uh, back then in my PhD, and I think it holds true today and it will hold true in mm. the future. It is a problem. And, and you, can, you can exemplify that very, very easily by saying, look, uh, a founder that was successful with a quick commerce company might not be the same founder profile that will be successful with a quantum computing startup. Like yeah. it's, it's just, it's just very clear that uh, future innovations um, might need a different recipe in terms of teams and in terms of market environments, in terms of also success criteria than another company um, used to in the past. So I, I think that's number one, very clear. Number two, there are different ways of dealing with that. So, Let's start on the highest level. On the highest level, the question is, how much do we actually rely on the data-driven approach? So yeah. do we just blindly accept the recommendation from the system and throw our money at the companies that come out of the system? That's the one extreme. The other extreme is what we saw until today, the past 50, 60 years, which is I just trust gut feeling and my network. And for me personally, and this is also why, why I called it an augmented VC approach back then, for me, the reality, at least today and also in the, in the midterm future, is something in the middle where we allow algorithms to do what they can do best, but then complement it with what humans can do best. So algorithms, essentially uh, uh, scrapers, uh, screening and so on, collect the data, uh, top of funnel, get comprehensive coverage and so on. Machines are way better in doing that uh, without mistakes compared to humans. But then it just gives a direction. So essentially a test investment team, look, there is something interesting out there. So it's more like a directional advice. There is something out there, check out this company. It's probably more interesting than this company. So that the investment team can spend time with the founders, sit down uh, with each other, look each other in the eyes and, and, and really feel if there a fire burning, is there something? So this is how I think about it in an augmented approach of taking data more as a direction and not as a strict final decision. So that's point number one. Point number two is there are different approaches of mitigating this uh, problem that you just described, that historic data might not be uh, a good predictor for future. No. So we can use these, um, these uh, data science approaches where we take historic data to predict an outcome that we know as of today. So we label the data and then assume that if we take the predictive input data from five years back, that it also worked like today. And we do exactly that. That's number one. Then number two is, um, and then this is where really the machine learning part comes in, we actually take these recommendations and within our system that we have developed with an early bird, we actually present the investment team, there is an exploration mode and they can um, check out new companies. So it's more like, I don't know, a, a dating app style, uh, like, dislike. And through this like, dislike, they can, uh, they can decide which companies they like to look into. So every investment professional within our team, they have their focus area. So depending on your focus area, depending on number one, I mentioned the historic data, they get recommendations. And through these recommendations, they can then decide like or dislike. And then the machine continues to learn. And this is now more of a deterministic approach because through this deterministic approach, we can actually start to mirror the human biases that exist within our team. So mm. through this, let's say, observation of deterministic biases, we start codifying them. 
That's the second part. And the third part, which is on the other side of the spectrum, is then very obvious. So we do have hard criteria. So we invest only in Europe. We invest, let's say, one to 10 million initially. We invest in whatever enterprise software, deep tech, frontier tech, fintech, intratech, and so on. And we can hard code all of those. And then we can say, if it is an enterprise software, um, we have 100 universities and these degrees at the universities that are successful. So we can also manually actively define the deterministic approach. And now what we need to do is to take the fully data science approach, which is just based on historic data that you have described and you have clearly outlined the problem. We take the active human deterministic. So we sit down, build our tree and take all of the data. And we take in the middle this observation machine learning part and need to balance them all across. So we take these different weights essentially, build an equation for a recommendation system. And depending on the novelty of a company, which also needs to be measured again, we can decide which of the three factors uh, becomes, uh, becomes most important or less important. So this is how we think about it in number one. How much do we actually rely on the data-driven approach? We believe in an augmented approach. And number two, mm. how can we mitigate it with the three approaches that I just mentioned? Yeah, clear. This, this augmented approach I find really interesting. I was wondering if that was the direction it was going. Um, because I'm kind of interested more in where this goes because it's in still early days. You know, I, I love to play poker and one of the analogies at the poker table is you either play the odds or you play the table, right? You're either reading the players or you're reading the hands, right? And if you try to do both, sometimes either the data or the tells will, will mislead you. <laughs> yeah. um, but what you're basically saying is you're, you're kind of playing both, but it sounds like you're using even more data to kind of back up the intuitive aspect, the qualitative aspect of it. Where does this end up? Do you believe this is this? Are you eventually going to work yourself out of a job? Will the machines take over? I don't think so. Um, I think uh, your, your summary is, is quite right. So we don't believe in either or approach. We believe in a strong combination of both. And this is also like within early bird, uh, we historically were quite intentional on how we built the firm. So we do have offices in Munich and Berlin and Paris and London and Istanbul. So we do have people on the ground because, and that goes actually closest the loop to what I said earlier in, the, in terms of these components throughout the value chain. One part that I did not touch upon is the access component because like it, 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 it's, it's really useless if we spot all founders. So we have comprehensive coverage. We have the best screening. So machine learning based, data science, augmented, whatever. So we screen it down to the number of opportunities. We need founders and then the founders like, yeah, I just don't think you're valuable. And that, like we never win a deal. So this access component is also where the human part becomes really, really important. And um, I think long-term, specifically in early-stage venture, these data-driven approaches will just make us more efficient, more effective, and more inclusive. So they will allow us to do our job better than we've done in the past. But at the same time, I don't think that they will replace us. They will just allow us to spend more time with the founders and spend more time with the actual valuable levers in the process. So this is how I think about it. Um, one, one side note, by the way, so um, there were already some VCs who tried it like 10 years back when we had the rise of uh, big data GPUs. So there were some people, they were not, uh, or most of them were not publicly speaking about it as most do today, by the way. Um, and then there was, uh, there was uh, another rise around like 2016, 17, where another few firms started, but most of them have discontinued because it's not straightforward. You cannot just take out the blueprint and just execute. And this was also one of the, the major motivations why I decided to actually build a community because I felt completely lost back then when I did mm -hmm. my PhD and I was just so surprised why this was the case. And it was mostly naysayers, uh, people who, who said it won't work, it's qualitative, it's early stage and so on. And I'm very thankful that now we have a growing community of people who strongly believe that it will change. And now another component to that is that through the rise now of large language models, we actually saw an acceleration. So when I started writing this newsletter, it was mostly linear growth in terms of uh, opportunities out there. How can you leverage new technology? 
But I feel that now in Q4, Q1, we actually got into this acceleration where suddenly we have so many more opportunities of making data actionable, analyzing, similarity analysis, agent-based stuff that Dries has also worked a lot in. So there's a very, very broad spectrum that suddenly is available to us. And I think on spot to your question of where this will end, I think it will stay an augmented approach. But I think we are just really at day zero still in terms of how we incorporate it, because for those few firms that are exploring some of these techniques, it's as said, mostly explorative on, and not fully incorporated into their processes. So I think we will see more exploration. We will see a stronger incorporation into the processes. And then midterm, I expect that we will see uh, yeah, a separation in the market between those firms that use such techniques and those that don't. Now, you, you raised the point of LMMs and generative AI, so I, I get very enthusiastic about that kind of topic, but can you maybe give, give a specific example uh, of how you guys are now leveraging this kind of novel techniques to further optimize your data-driven approach where, where it's really helping you? Because I see a lot of people experimenting with it, uh, but sometimes the experiments stay a bit limited to, oh, write me a LinkedIn post for something. Uh, can you give an example of where you have really managed to leverage LMMs to kind of really boost the productivity of your data-driven approach? And you don't have to actually, tell the, the big secrets, but... Yeah, yeah no, I mean, as, as, as you know, I'm, I'm actually, I'm generally quite open because the stuff I'm talking about is really not the secret sauce. Uh, it's, it's the straightforward, obvious stuff that you would come yeah. to if you think about it for some time. So I think um, if we look into the application within our team, so firstly, all of the stuff that I have described before, we have built, so we have like very, very scalable data collection, primary data, we have uh, we have integrated lots of secondary data, we have uh, quite a powerful uh, entity matching, inter and intra-entity matching, so we create this single source of truth. And then number one is, how can you actually make the data actionable? So we have built our own application uh, internally, and within this application, um, sometimes it's just like overwhelming uh, in terms of the, the amount of data. So we have yeah. just built a simple chatbot interface. Um, so okay. for this chatbot interface, there are actually two dimensions. One is you run it on the proprietary data that we do have internally. So obviously we don't want to disclose that to OpenAI and put it out in the world for retraining and so on. Um, so we use uh, our actually portfolio company of ours, Aleph Alpha. Um, who have built uh, okay. the leading models for um, enterprises. So they focus a lot on trustworthiness, explainability, and so on. So we have included their models into our platform. And then secondly, um, we do have uh, also included um, the OpenAI models for different versions, uh, GPT 3.5, for example, um, to leverage publicly available data. So you can now easily interact with our platform of asking, I don't know, uh, what's the background of the founders, then it will consider our data and or it will consider publicly available data, whatever is more useful. Um, then secondly, you can ask them, I don't know, prepare an email to the founders and uh, it will be tailored based on our information already. So it will be really based on, on our style in terms of the information from early bird and so on. So there are multiple mm -hmm. avenues in that sense. Then secondly, through the rise of uh, large language models, um, we've also seen the rise of uh, vector databases. So for these vector databases, um, they are actually quite powerful in terms of similarity matching. So we take, yep. for example, word embeddings of descriptions of a company. So we have company descriptions, uh, let's say in a simple way from Crunchbase. And then we take all Crunchbase company uh, descriptions um, create these word embeddings, so essentially creating some vectors, and then we compare how similar these vectors are to find similar companies, EI competitors, and then we can again include some deterministic stuff like how much money did they raise and so on. So this is a second um, use case. Then thirdly, um, you can use it for whatever kind of content generation. Um, so we have, we have actually multiple avenues and uh, we are internally collecting a prompt database where we, we are collecting everything uh, that is just useful, plus we include it into our platform. So I think in terms of application of large language models and the uh, related uh, tools and technologies that come up with it, um, we are already quite advanced, but still at an exploration phase um, as most other uh, firms. Yeah, clear. 
because Garrett, I was actually, I would actually be interested. What is at you at your company as a founder? What is your kind of level of experimentation with large language models at the moment? I mean, we've been playing with it recently. Just, uh, I mean, we're we haven't gone to market yet, right? So we're no. just doing some like early messaging testing, and we've been kind of experimenting with it that way. But uh, yeah, I find it. I I'm in a. To, without giving too much away because we're still in stealth mode we're in a we're in in health and health is very much about trust right and i maybe i'm old school maybe i'm getting <laughs> getting too old but you know we're trying to build meaningful relationships of trust between uh, a trusted healthcare provider and and a patient over arguably the most sensitive topic there is so I'm sure there's some learnings that that can be had, but we're very much focused on uh, not not pulling from the Borg, but really trying to do hands on uh, discovery with people in our markets. Um, but yeah, maybe that'll change. I mean, I'm certainly playing with it. I'm seeing more and more founders do it. But frankly, I think I think these tools, most people don't know how to use very effectively yet mm. and as a result they're getting kind of crap crap results and if you take a dogmatic approach to this is what we're going to do i think you're still going to run into some some trouble would be my yeah. my guess but you're talking to a 49 year old maybe i'm just a, <laughs> a, gr a grumpy old man at this point funny enough i i just saw a study yesterday in terms of the uh penetration so i think it was a bcg study that has surveyed more than twelve thousand people um, and they split them across three levels so senior leadership then mid-management and then really people on the ground um more obviously mostly knowledge workers and uh, funny enough the penetration at the top level was significantly higher than at lower levels um, okay. showing that uh, essentially across the market, even though senior leaders uh, play around with it, the penetration is really just uh, day one. So uh, most of the people have just heard about it and haven't started. And I think it's actually uh, um, more art than science in terms of the front engineering and really figuring out how to handle these models. Yeah. So I think we also sometimes live in a bubble where, it, where you have the feeling that everybody is using it, but it might actually be a small bubble that... Yeah, 100%. I, I, I'd like to throw a wrench into this discussion that kind of popped <laughs> into my head during it. Dries is laughing because I have a habit of doing that. But, you know, I think of as an angel investor and, and as a founder multiple times, I always I think of there's some fundamental questions that we are, we've been I think people in the industry have been asking themselves a long time and have always kind of said, well, nobody really knows the answer. Like eventually the data will tell us. And I thought maybe I could throw a few of those at you and see, see what comes out of what you've seen so far. Is sure. that all right? Okay. Um, so the first one, and it's a controversial one, um, is it better to invest in a failed founder or someone who has never failed before? Uh, funny enough, um, we ran some analysis actually on team uh, back then, and some of that I actually published in my newsletter, so how do successful founders look like. By the way, there's also an, a very interesting um, uh, book out there um, with the super founders from, I guess, Ali Tamasap. Uh, and, uh, yeah. But 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 uh, on this topic, I don't have in mind uh, the actual data. So um, in terms of successful versus failed, um, I would need to look it up in detail. Okay. <laughs> Look, fair enough. That's a good. That's a good. You're, da uh, you're talking with a data answer. guy, Garrett. <laughs> they will not say something if they're not sure about the data. <laughs> I know. My CTO is going to listen to this podcast and shake his head at me later. <laughs> University. Like I see a big bias in Germany as an American living in Germany for like education matters. Do you, do you it think it matters? Yeah, it does. Um, now the question is if it actually matters or if it matters because it's in the data. So mm -hmm. if you look back, then uh, most of if you just take like, I don't know, for example, the US ecosystem, then it was mostly the prominent universities. Like if you graduated from Stanford, you had likelihood of X significantly higher than if you studied at whatever countryside uh, tier three university to raise mm -hmm. funding. So this is what the data says. 
but it's not sure if it is really because of your education or if it's more of a self-selection that uh, you just get better access to VC money. And this is why it's in the data. So, and this is, I think that, that that's a perfect example of what Dries said earlier. If we, if we would just take this data, then we would continue to invest in founders from great universities and would mm. never uh, become more inclusive. Uh, but if we ask the data, actually, um, university and previous education is a very strong predictor. And number two, we also um, uh, crunch the data in terms of um, degree. So the higher the degree, the higher the likelihood. So in terms of uh, undergrad, then uh, graduate degree, but then also PhD or MBA, there's a significantly higher likelihood moderated by which industry are you in. So if right. you build a quick commerce, then a PhD is... Uh, less uh, predicting than if you build whatever uh, a core fusion company and uh, PhD is more or less required yeah. depending on which which position. All right, I'm going to ask you one more and this one's near and dear to my Good. heart. Does diversity really matter? Um, so in terms of uh, performance, it does. Yes, um, there is actually, um, there are different studies out there. Um, I actually also published something as a guest post also from uh, Professor Isabel Welpe from TU Munich. Uh, she has done with her team some research around it, showing that actually um, both hybrid teams, so male and female, um, perform better than pure male teams and that pure female teams also perform better. So there is actually data out there there are some other studies. Um, someone who has done lots of research in this field is actually Paul Gompers, um, Harvard University. Uh, he has also conducted quite some research and he has continuously found that uh, diverse teams perform better. Plus, now switching sides from founder to also investors, VCs, that also are more diverse uh, VC teams or VC partnerships who are the decision-making body also perform better. Yeah, that, that's what I figured. You know, one of the... When you look at the fail points of, of new ventures, especially young ventures, you know, one of the things that is often near the top, it's usually one in four, one in five ventures fail because of some issue with the team. Oftentimes it's even team dynamics, right? So yeah. you can have founders that look great on paper, all the data points to them, but there could be a, some type of clash or some type of, you know, mixed values or vision that really makes the team crumble for, for this within. is really the point i think you can be diverse while still still having a sufficient common denominator so you yeah. need to have to come in the denominator which is alignment which is oftentimes vision values so this is a common denominator but then you uh, you're probably better off if you have diversity in terms of backgrounds in terms of experience so <clears throat> diversity is also more than gender right diversity is uh, something like a background in terms of how you grew up if you grew up in whatever, uh, South Africa, uh, versus if you grew up in North America, this is also a different background. If you uh, studied engineering versus if you studied whatever political sciences, your, your brain is wired in a completely different way and how, how you interpret data. So we think about diversity way more broadly than just gender, but thankfully, it, like the research becomes quite good and quite evident for the gender part and continues to expand across other dimensions of diversity. So does that mean like some of these variables allow you to start assessing the, the cohesion and the capabilities of the team and reduce that risk as well? Because that seems one that human behavior in that regard is so hard to predict, right? Um, you're, you're getting into into one of our very explorative fun projects. So number one, I'd, I'd, I'd just like to mention because it's very important, correlation versus causation. causation so yeah. what I mentioned before, there's oftentimes correlation, but let's not confuse it with causation. That's number one. Mm -hmm. Number two on your specific question. So um, there is there are two different very interesting research streams. One is on marriage research. So mm -hmm. with your big five um, character traits of two partners, you can actually with statistically uh, significant evidence predict 
if a couple will stay together or not. Yeah. So this is one research stream. And then there is a second research stream, which was mostly around Cambridge Analytica. So from a really uh, great lab in Cambridge who took um, social media profiles and social media interactions. So mm -hmm. not only in terms of with whom you are connected, but more importantly, what did you like? How did you comment? What's the sentiment and so on? And essentially take your social media interactions, both from LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and so on, and predict your big five character traits. Mm -hmm. Now, the idea is to bring both of that together. So to take social media profiles of founders and check if, I don't know, they like, for example, Nike, they're more extrovert, or they like Adidas and they are more introvert. Take these big five character trait predictions and then map it across the teams and look historically if some combinations of uh, these, these character traits uh, or lead, lead more to more conflicts or less to conflicts. So we've been working on that um, and we continuously do that. We are actually, uh, some time ago, we started collecting ground truth data. So we also run surveys uh, with, with, with some founders in terms of their, their character traits and so on. So this is an ongoing research stream, but the idea is really to find uh, some kind of uh, predictors that help us to see if there is a potential conflict among the founders. Mm. Because if we can reduce that, we would be able to actually reduce many of the write-offs. And I can fully agree, we did post-mortems multiple times. We continuously do them across the portfolio. And the main case is always conflicts within the team or that the team was not capable to grow into a position. So if we can reduce that, that's amazing, and we can hopefully keep more of the upside alive. I think, last comment, it will be actually more important even for for um, growth investors because yeah. we are more upside-oriented. Like, if we have a write-off because of a team, that's more or less part of the business. It's never nice, of course, but it's more or less part of the business, and it's priced into our VC business model. But if you're a growth investor write-offs hurt a lot because you have this normal distribution of returns. So if you as a growth investor can leverage such data-driven approaches to assess the teams, I think it can be super valuable if you can reduce the number of write-offs which come due to the team. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. Do you think you get, uh, do, you, do you ever get pushback from founders? Um, in what sense? Well, I think... You know, if they know you're taking that kind of approach, they knew, know you're doing a level of due diligence that maybe historically not all investors would do. And maybe some, you know, I'm just hypothesizing, some founders would find that intrusive or uncomfortable, at least. Yeah, if you Is tell that... people, I have, I've scraped your LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook, and based on that, I know that you're an introvert <laughs> that is likely to become an alcoholic in two years. <laughs> Maybe not everybody <laughs> likes the fact it's, that it's, you know that kind of information. No? It's actually it's actually funny whenever I uh, tell people about this marriage research uh, that's out there in terms of predicting if couples will break up. Many people are like, "Oh, what the fuck!" Like I don't want to know about that. Um, but 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 funny enough, um, I guess the overall feedback from founders is uh, really positive and more curious. So I think also looking into the data-driven VC audience, there are many many founders who are really interested in it because I think from the stuff I'm writing about, uh, there are always two sides. So it matters a lot for the VCs, of course, mm -hmm. but at the same time, it matters a lot for the founders. Like if you're looking for co-founders, what should I look for? If I'm looking for like to, to build a successful company, what should I look for? So I think it's, it's, it's uh, interesting and relevant for both sides. And actually so far, I haven't gotten any negative uh, feedback um, from the founder side specifically because most of them are actually just interesting. And I think uh, nowadays, uh, mostly everyone should know that whatever I put out there on the web, uh, it will be used for something. Mm -hmm. Cool. Of Very course, according to terms and conditions and so on. Yeah. But uh, if you put something out there, uh, it's, it's, it's pretty clear. Very cool. Okay, also given the time, I think it's time to kind of round off the discussion. I think we could nerd for quite some time, additional time. I agree. <laughs> we should also uh, stop at a certain time, but we always end, Andre, with uh, asking our guests uh, to give us some recommendations in terms of books that they can recommend or podcasts or movies that they watched. Do you have something specific that you would like to recommend to our audience? And it can be related to the topic, but it, you're also allowed to, to suggest something completely unrelated. 
Um, books, I think one like um, I actually in, in, in the past I read quite uh, quite a bit. Uh, recently, more into the areas I'm really interested uh, in, so it becomes very very much uh, business oriented. But one book I really enjoyed in the past is Principles by Ray Dalio, mm. um, which is about the uh, concept of meritocracy. So I think it's a super super interesting book that also uh, helped me a lot uh, in what I'm doing today. Um, I think uh, another one is uh, No Rules Rules um, about the Netflix culture, uh, which also informs a lot about my personal uh, leadership style. So really in terms of empowering people um, in multiple other dimensions. So I think those are two uh, that, that really come to my mind. Okay, great. Great. And where can, uh, can you give yourself a quick plug? Where can listeners find you online? DataDrivenVC.io. As simple or just LinkedIn, um, just follow me on, on Andre Retterrad. Awesome. Great. Then, Andre, I really want to thank you to spend like one hour with us. It was great to kind of discuss about this topic, to also kind of talk a bit about uh, the, the I, I really like, for instance, that we talked about inclusion, how a data driven approach can help to get in a more kind of inclusive investment strategies, because I think that's one of the pain points that we are still facing. So it, it's great to hear that that's for you also one of the driving forces that I really like. So I really enjoyed our talk. Garrett, thanks for co-hosting again. I think it's always great if we do it together. I really like it. And I, of course, also hope that our audience really enjoyed this episode. And please, uh, if you liked it, don't forget to uh, give us a good rating on all the different platforms because that's always really helpful. And apart from that, uh, I hope we will uh, have you again uh, as listeners in the next episodes. Okay, bye. Thank you both. Bye-bye.